Gracious Father, we thank you for blessing us. We thank you for taking care of us. We thank you for uh, your love and mercy. Thankful for the salvation that we have in Christ and for the, the hope and the happiness that that brings to us. We're thankful for occasions like this when we can uh, gather together and study uh, from the Scriptures. We pray that our study today would help us all and help us to uh, better understand and appreciate what Jesus has done for us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. All right, last week uh, in the first part of John chapter 10, we studied uh, what is uh, referred to generally as the Good Shepherd Discourse, where Jesus talked about uh, shepherding and sheep, uh, a very common uh, topic in that, uh, in that day and time, and used it to make some spiritual application. So we looked at that, and today... As we make our way through the chapter, we find that after that, uh, after that discourse, there were some folks who wanted a very straightforward answer to the question of the Lord's identity. And so they will, they will simply ask Him uh, to tell them plainly and clearly uh, who He is. And we'll see how he deals with that question as we, as we press ahead. All right. Verse 22 is where we're beginning. And verse 22 says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Uh, I'm going to take just a uh, couple of minutes to give a little preview of uh, tonight's sermon. Sermon at 6 p.m. tonight, uh, if the Lord wills that we, uh, that we make it uh, until then. Um, we refer to a lot of times the, the period between the Testaments as the 400 silent years. Uh, and by that, we're, we mean that during that 400 year period, from the time that Malachi finished uh, his prophetic work, and the time that John the baptizer comes on the scene as the forerunner of Jesus, there was about 400 years of time. And during that time, there was no inspired uh, prophet uh, among the people. And so there are 400 silent years in the sense of prophetic silence, inspirational uh, silence. Uh, and so there, there was no prophet between that time. No inspired writing in that time. But those years were not really silent in the strictest sense of the term because God was still active during that period bringing about uh, what Paul would refer to in Galatians 4 verse 4 as the fullness of time. And, um, and so we're going to be studying that tonight at 6. I think it's a very important study that, that, we, that we know some things that happened during that period of time, but we don't often study it. Uh, and so I'm calling it the 400 not-so-silent years, uh, and that's what we'll study tonight. But the reason that I bring that up is because of this being one passage, John 10, 22, that says it was the Feast of Dedication. Well, that was a Jewish feast. But if you go back and read your Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, you'll never find a reference to the Feast of Dedication. And the reason for that is it didn't exist until 
this 400-year period during that time, specifically 165 B.C., is when the Feast of Dedication was uh, inaugurated among the Jewish people. So it was not a feast that was inscribed in the Law of Moses. It was a cultural thing that the Jewish people began to celebrate uh, in the wintertime. And, um, and so if we're going to fully understand John 10.22 and what the Feast of Dedication was and, and all of that, then we have to study that, that period of time and at least have some knowledge, some understanding of it. But just, again, by way of, of introduction, try to you know, prime the pump for tonight. Think about some of these things that we find in the New Testament that, we, that are never mentioned in the Old. Um, Pharisees and Sadducees. All over the Gospel accounts. But you can't find a single reference to them in Genesis to Malachi. So, so how do we understand all of this interaction that Jesus had with Pharisees and Sadducees without going back at some point and understanding how did the Pharisees and Sadducees come to be? Well, it happened during that 400-year period. Uh, what about the Herods and the Caesars and the strange alliance that existed between the Herods who, who oversaw the Judean area in a civil way and kind of a religious way too? And the Caesars, how did, how did that strange alliance begin? Well, we wouldn't know that if we didn't study that 400-year period. Uh, what about uh, synagogues? Jesus utilized the synagogues. The apostles utilized the synagogues. But they're, they're not in the Old Testament. But they're all over the New Testament. Uh, so there, there are a lot of things like that. And a lot of the, a lot of the prophetic... Uh, statements in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter uh, 7, chapter 8, uh, right right in there. Daniel makes prophecies that involve things that would happen during that 400-year period. So, uh, without at least some cursory knowledge of the things that happened during that period of time, we're going to have passages in, in the Bible that, that are puzzling, to us, uh, but at least with some understanding of it, it'll you know it'll kind of open some things up and, and help some things to make more sense. So, with that kind of said, we're gonna I'm gonna do a survey, an overview of that 400 year period tonight uh, at the uh, six o'clock hour, God willing, and uh, and so um, you know I hope you're hope you'll be here for that. But John 10:22 is one of the things that prompted that that little preview, is it was the Feast of Dedication. And it was wintertime. Basically, this was a feast that celebrated the cleansing of the temple in 165 B.C., which had been desecrated three years earlier by a, uh, a terrible uh, Syrian ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and they battled for three years against his forces after he had desecrated the temple by, by slaughtering a pig in there. And uh, finally, they defeated him, they cleansed the temple, and they rededicated it, and that became the Feast of Dedication. And it happens in the wintertime, uh, in the month of December. The Jewish people today call it what? Hanukkah. Yeah, that's, that's what they're celebrating. We'll learn more about what they're celebrating and all that tonight as we, as we cover that. That's the Feast of Dedication. So this was the time period in which these things were taking place. Roughly, the, the time period that we're in... Uh, right now. So Jesus is there and he is walking along 
what's referred to in verse 23 as Solomon's porch. Uh, you might have the word colonnade in the translation you're reading from, and that's what it was. It was a porch area colonnade on the east side of the temple that, um, that, that joined uh, next to the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus is there in that temple court area. And some Jewish folk approached him and asked him that pointed question that we referenced a minute ago, verse 24. If you are, well, first of all, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly whether or not you're the Christ. Now, if you take that question and just kind of separate it from, divorce it from its circumstances and just look at it as a standalone question, anything wrong with the question. Are you the Christ or are you not? But you can't really separate it from its circumstances because the people who were asking it were not really honest, being honest with themselves or with Jesus or with the facts. And you see that in the Lord's response. Look at verse 25. He said, I told you, but you do not believe. Basically, when they came to Jesus and said, all right, don't keep us in suspense any longer. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And the Lord's response was basically, well, what more information do you need? I've told you already who I am. I've answered that question already. Uh, and, and yet you don't believe the answer. You ever known somebody like that? That, you know, they, they, they ask a question. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a Bible question. And, you know, you can show them the answer right there in the Scriptures. And they don't like the answer. So they ask you again, or maybe they go ask somebody else. Sometimes with, with some folks, and we'll say more about this in a bit, sometimes with some folks it's not a matter of information. It's a matter of will. It's a matter of do I want to believe what, I'm, what the evidence is, is teaching. And some folks just don't, and that's unfortunate. It's tragic. But think about, think about how the Lord responded here when He said, I told you already. You didn't believe. I went back just in John's Gospel account and looked at the different instances when Jesus specifically said who He was. And, and there, were, there were more, actually, than I thought would have been there as I went back and just kind of thumbed through the text. But let me, let's call our attention to just uh, a handful of those by way of example, when Jesus said, I told you already. Well, did he? He did. Chapter 2, verse 16. At the time that he uh, cleaned out the temple, he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or trade. Well, that was the temple. And what did he refer to that as? My Father's house. So what was he claiming? He was claiming to be the Son of God. All right. So there's one place where he told them who he was, just by using the terminology, my Father. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 26. This is specifically, he's talking to the Samaritan woman here. And so he's telling her specifically, that's just one person. But that message, she's going to share with others. And so the message is getting out of who he claimed to be. 
when she said in verse 25, John 4, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, you don't get much clearer than that. These people are saying, all right, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. How much, how much more plain can you get than when he says, I am that person? How about uh, chapter 5? Really, the, the whole last uh, half or two-thirds of chapter 5 is Jesus telling them who he is. If you begin in uh, 17 of chapter 5, My Father is working until now, and I'm working. Well, when he said, My Father, if you look at verse 18, they interpreted that correctly. He called God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They understood exactly what he was claiming. When he claimed an exclusive, unique relationship with God that, that others didn't have. And then you go through that, the rest of that chapter, and you see all these examples of um, him claiming to have this relationship with his Father, being the Son of God. Whatever he sees the Father do, he does. <clears throat> Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. That's the end of verse 19. The Father loves the Son. The Father, verse 21, raises the dead, and the Son will as well. So all of this Father-Son throughout the whole rest of chapter 5. Uh, look into chapter 6. Uh, actually, several places in chapter 6. Look specifically at 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So He's claiming to have come down from heaven to do the will of His Father. Uh, chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Again, he claims to have come down from heaven to be speaking the words of God, that God is his Father. Uh, same chapter, verse uh, 28. You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him. Uh, chapter 8. <clears throat> Verses 18 and 19. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, Where is your Father? And he says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. I mean, he's telling them, in direct answer to their questions, he's telling them, I have come from heaven. God is my Father. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. How about uh, 42 of chapter 8? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. 54, verse 54, same chapter. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. All right? So, so that's just a smattering of verses just in John's account. 
where Jesus specifically said, I came from heaven, God is my Father, all of those things. So when these people come to him and says, okay, don't keep us in suspense any longer, tell us plainly whether or not you're the Christ. You can understand his answer. I've told you already. You just don't believe. Now, that's, those were just his words when he told them. But he'll say in just a moment, he'll call attention to his works, which also were evidence of who he was. And so we could go back if we, if we wanted to and look at all of the accounts just in John's gospel of where Jesus performed miraculous uh, events. The miracle at Cana in chapter 2, the, uh, the nobleman's son in chapter 4, the, um, you know, the, uh, the man in chapter uh, uh, 5 who was uh, paralyzed, um, chapter 6, the feeding of the thousands, right? So it's just chapter 9, the man who was born blind. So all of these, not only by word, but also by deed, by work. Jesus was constantly telling them who he is. And so they come and say, well, you know, tell us, tell us plainly. And he said, I've already told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. That's the end of verse 25. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So they weren't, they weren't being honest with the evidence that they already had. And so Jesus tells them that the reason why they hadn't accepted the evidence was because they were really not among his sheep. In other words, they may have been following him in one sense, and they were just in the sense that they were in his presence. Okay? They, they were where he was, and so in a very general and broad sense, they were, they were physically following him, following him around, but they weren't paying attention. That's the point he's making. You're not really among my sheep. Because you're not paying attention. He describes what his sheep do. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Not just in physical proximity, they follow me by embracing not only what I say, but they embrace what I say because of what I do. And so they, they truly believe in who I am and in who I have claimed to be. But that's not you. You that are, that are saying, okay, tell us plainly. You don't need any more information. You should have this already. But they just simply chose not to believe it. So that's why they are truly not of his, of his sheep, of his followers. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, his sheep, and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if they were his sheep, they would be able to enjoy blessings like eternal life. Blessing belonging only to those that, again, that follow him. And, and there is security in following Jesus. Now, some, just take a little side point here. Some have taken this passage, uh, specifically verses 28 and 29, and have used it to to affirm that once a person is among the sheep, once a person has, uh, has been saved, 
that that person then under no circumstances could ever be lost. Okay? Well, there, there are two things to remember with every biblical passage and doctrine. We should believe everything that the Bible teaches. But we need to be careful not to affirm something that the Bible doesn't affirm. And I think that's where some folks have, have missed it with this, with this passage. Is it true that there is security in Christ? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we have God's promise, and this passage is one of them, that no one, not even Satan himself, can remove us from God's protective care against our wills. You think if Satan had the power and the ability, he would, he would destroy our fellowship with God without our input on the matter? You know, Jesus once told uh, Peter and the other apostles, Satan desires to have you. He, he wants you. So I think if, if what we know about Satan, if he had his way, he would be able to destroy our fellowship with God um, if, if he had the power and the ability to just arbitrarily do that. He can't. He can't do that. And that's what this passage is teaching. No one can come in and snatch you away from the protective care of my Father. That's security. Here's what the passage doesn't say. And this is where some folks, unfortunately, I believe have missed it. The passage says nothing about whether or not I have the choice to remove myself from the Father's care. See, the only thing that he's talking about here is someone coming in and snatching us out against our wills. That can't happen. And so that's security. But if I choose to leave the Father's protective care, do I have the ability to do that? Yeah, sure I do. So this passage doesn't teach that once a person is saved, that there are no circumstances whatsoever in which that once saved person can then be lost. It doesn't teach that. It teaches that once a person is saved, Satan can't come in and snatch them away from God. But if that person desires to leave God's protective care, God allows that to happen. That's one of the lessons from the parable of the prodigal son. One of the side points, but still a, uh, a, a lesson, a true lesson nonetheless, that when the son decided to leave his father's house and go off and waste his inheritance, the father didn't tie him down. The father did not keep him from going off and doing that. If the son wanted to do that, the father was going to allow him to do it. And God is that way with us. If we want to leave His protective care, He's not going to force us to stay. He's not going to force us to obey Him. And that harmonizes with the totality of, of biblical teaching on the subject. If I choose to go astray, I can. I, I can be, as Peter describes it, I can be like the dog in that very graphic passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. I can be like that dog and return to my own vomit. I can be like the pig in the same passage, that though it has been washed, 
goes back to wallowing in the mire. And Peter says in that passage, the person that does that, the latter state is worse for them than the first. Peter, go, Peter goes so far as to say, in, in plain language, it would have been better for that person never to have known the truth and obeyed it initially than to have known it and gone back to what he left behind. So, yes, it's possible to lose what you have. But you're never going to lose it because of some arbitrary decree or some arbitrary action of Satan who comes in and destroys your relationship with God against your will. He can't do that. He doesn't have the ability to do that. He can't even place a temptation in your path that is beyond your ability to deal with. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13? God will not allow him to do that. That implies that he sure would like to, but God doesn't allow it. So, if ultimately, if any Christian who has embraced the gospel, they've been saved from their sins, added to the body, a part of the fold, the sheepfold, all of that, any person that's ever in that condition, if on the day of judgment they're lost, whose fault is it not? It's not God's fault. It's not going to be His fault. Because He gave you protection from every outside force. So if I'm lost on the day of judgment, it's going to be nobody's fault but my own because I chose to leave His fellowship. Alright? So, let's teach what Jesus taught here. There is great security in Christ. Nobody can, nobody can destroy my relationship with God against my will. But if I choose to cooperate, then the relationship can be destroyed. Notice, again, verse, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they what? They follow me. So who are the ones that are going to have eternal life? Those that follow Jesus. What if you stop following Him? If the blessing is for those who follow Him, then if I stop following Him, then I forfeit the blessing, don't I? So let's teach what Jesus taught, but let's make sure we don't put words in His mouth. <laughs> that he never taught. Does that make sense? Alright, so then Jesus says, we proceed, Jesus says, I and my Father are one, verse 30. He did not mean by that that he and the Father were one person. Again, there's some folks, uh, uh, some you know religious folk who, who teach that, that, that the Father and the Son are actually the same person. But that's not what he's teaching here. The word one, I and my father are one, is, um, is in a grammatical construction there that signifies unity of nature. Not unity of individuality, but unity of nature. In other words, Jesus is claiming equality with God. That's what he's claiming. And his listeners knew exactly what he was claiming because look at their reaction. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They knew what he was claiming. He was claiming equality with God, which is what they say in their explanation. Because Jesus, once they pick up the stones, Jesus, um, Jesus said, uh, you know, if I can paraphrase a little bit, uh, hold on a second, fellas. I've done a lot of good works. Uh, would you mind telling me for which one of those works you're about to kill me? And they said, uh, it's, not, it's not because of that. 
we're killing you or going to because of blasphemy. This is verse 33. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Alright, so when Jesus made his statement, I and the Father are one, they knew exactly what he was claiming. And he wasn't claiming to be the same person. He was claiming an equal nature with God. He said, you're a, they said, you're a man, yet you're claiming divinity. And, bla- and that's blasphemy. And that's why we're going to stone you. That was their answer to that. Well, in response to that, Jesus offers, again, some very, very logical argumentation um, to show, to point out their inconsistency. And just, here's another side point. If you want a, a, a special uh, way to study John's account, read through it with, with, with the specific idea in mind of noticing how many times Jesus uses if-then arguments. And it shows how reasonably, logically, if you will, Jesus conducted himself in his teaching. So go, th- go, go through and read and look for all those occasions where Jesus said, well, if that's the case, then this is the case. If this is true, then this should be true. But this is not true. Therefore, this isn't true. All right? In other words, if what you're, Jesus will say to some of his detractors, if what you're saying is true then this ought to follow. But this doesn't follow. Therefore, your original statement is false. And he did that like in chapter 8. Let me just give you that example. Show you what I'm talking about. Um, Look at 39, chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, all right, if, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Alright? So they make a statement. This is our statement of truth. This is what we believe to be as true. We are Abraham's children. Jesus essentially says, alright, let's test that. Let's see if that holds up to logical argumentation. If that were true, if you were Abraham's children, then you would act like Abraham. But then he says, but, verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, and this is not what Abraham did. All right? So, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But you're not doing the works of Abraham. So, therefore, your original statement is false. You are not Abraham's children. Okay? See how that works? You can read through John, and he does that throughout that Throughout John's account, there are different places where he'll do that. Well, wait a minute. Jesus he'll say, well, if that's true, if what you're saying is true, then this should follow. But this doesn't follow, so therefore your statement is false. Some people think that, that Jesus was a kind of, just kind of a live and let live kind of guy. That he would never call anybody's beliefs into question and, and all of that, but, but he did. He would question people. 
and say, well, wait a minute, you say this is true, but if that were, if that were true, then this would follow. But that doesn't follow. So what you said is not true. All right. So back to chapter 10. He's going to show their inconsistency by logical argumentation. Jesus answered them and said, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. So basically, Jesus said, All right, wait, 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 wait. You're all hot and bothered because I claim to be the Son of God. Doesn't it say in your own law? All right, so he's putting it back on them. This is what your law says. And then he quotes from the book of Psalms, specifically from Psalm 82, verse 6, which is a passage that uses the term gods, plural, to refer in that context, in that psalm, to civil authorities, oddly enough. And so Jesus calls it in and says, wait a minute, doesn't your law say this? And then he quotes Psalm 82, 6, which, which is an exact quote. Now, look at how he argues. If, verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Here's, here's his argument. Yes, inspiration in Psalm 82.6 used the term gods to refer to Individuals, rulers, who served by divine authority and were, in that sense, representatives of God. The term is being used not to indicate that there is more than one divine being, but it's being used in a limited sense, in a broad sense, of those rulers who served by divine authority. And that's not the only place where that happened. Hold your place there in John 10 and go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus... Chapter uh, 4. Exodus 4. <clears throat> Verse 16. This is where God is uh, talking to Moses uh, through the burning bush and is telling Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and talk to Pharaoh and release my people. Moses is, is trying to get out of it. One of the things that he says was, I'm not a good speaker. I don't speak well. And so God uh, said that uh, he would give Aaron, his brother, as kind of his mouthpiece. And so he says, verse 16, He, Aaron, shall speak for you, Moses, to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as... God to him. All right? Hold that, hold that thought. And look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So just like God had a mouthpiece in the prophets, 
God is saying to Moses, Moses, you're going to be God in this situation, and Aaron's going to be your prophet. He's going to speak for you, just like my prophets speak for me. Okay? So, so the term God is applied sometimes in these specific cases in a general sense, not to indicate that Moses was divine, but just in that comparison, Moses would be God, Aaron would be his prophet. How about uh, in the book of Exodus, look over to chapter 21. Verse 6, Exodus 21, verse 6. These are laws about, uh, about servants, about slaves. Verse 6, Then his master shall bring him to who? The judges. Is that what everybody has? The judges? Anybody have anything different? Okay, what does it say? Who's there, who is he going to bring him to? Okay, does, does NIV say judges? Okay. Uh, do you know that the word there for judges is God's in the Hebrew? And matter of fact, the ESV reads, but if, but, uh, what verse did I say? Six? The master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the to the entrance of the doorpost. That, that, that's the Hebrew word for gods. Now, the translators translated it judges because they were to bring the man to those human beings that were going to hear the case. But the writer was using that term in the same way that the psalmist was using it in Psalm 82.6 in a broad sense because that those judges were individuals who were operating with God's authority. They were God's representatives. And so the word can be used in a broad sense. If you look in Exodus 22, beginning in verse 8, If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to the judges. Same word as in 21.6. It's the word for gods. Alright? So, my point is that there are instances where that word is used in a limited sense to refer to individuals who are God's representatives without indicating that they are divine themselves. Okay? So back to John 10. Jesus is saying to them, doesn't your law use the word that way? Doesn't your law in Psalm 82.6 refer to God's representatives as gods? Well, they couldn't argue with that. It did. So here's his point. If it doesn't bother you, this is Jesus' point, if it doesn't bother you for that term to be used that way to refer to imperfect civil rulers who are operating under God's authority, then why in the world does it bother you for me to refer to myself as the Son of God when I have, number one, shown no imperfections, and number two, have shown all of these miraculous deeds that prove that I am exactly who I'm claiming to be? Alright? He's trying to show their inconsistency. 
It doesn't bother you that civil rulers are, are called gods in Psalm 82.6. You don't raise a ruckus over that. So why does it bother you that I claim to be exactly what the evidence proves that I am? Not in a limited sense, but I am divine. And my actions, my miracles prove that. So if it doesn't bother you in, in the limited sense, why is it bothering you now when all the evidence points to the, 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 the factuality of what I'm saying? So he's pointing out their inconsistency. And that's when he adds right after that, he says, look, if I don't do the works of the Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, then you need to believe what those works are teaching you. You need to believe the evidence. Believe what the evidence is telling you. That I am exactly who I've claimed to be all this time. So you ask me, well, tell us plainly. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. He said, I've been telling you all along. And you just are choosing not to believe what the evidence is showing you. That I'm exactly who I've claimed to be all along. You just are choosing not to believe it. All right? Again, they sought to arrest him, verse 39. But he went away across the Jordan, verse 40 and following, to the area where John had been baptizing previously and uh, stayed there for a while. And notice that it says that while he was there, many came to him. And look at what they said, verse 41. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. John did no miracle. But everything John said about Jesus is true. Now think about that. This is, again, more convincing logic that John the Apostle, the writer of this, is, is saying. Here, here's the idea. John did no miracles. Yet the people respected John highly, didn't they? Remember uh, when... Jesus in John chapter 5 was talking about all the different witnesses of his deity. And he, he mentioned John the baptizer. You sent unto John, and for a while you were willing to bask in his light. In other words, you, you loved and appreciated John. Alright, so that was their attitude, at least early on, about John. And in Matthew 21, when um, Jesus encountered uh, some folks there who questioned his authority, and he said, Baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or from men? And Matthew tells us that they reasoned, well, if we say that the baptism of John was from men, we fear the people, because the people hold John to be a prophet. So the, 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 the common people, the populace, respected John. So here's the point. John did no sign, yet he was highly respected by the populace, the general populace. Jesus had done many signs. Where's his respect? You can respect the, the, the words of a man who did no miracle. But I do many miracles, and all you try to do is kill me. Where's the logic in that? Where's the reasonableness in that? Well, there wasn't any. All right, so... Um, so, again, another interchange where Jesus 
tries to help the people to reason through this correctly and accept simply what the evidence is teaching. All right, some practical lessons. Quickly, and these are in your uh, on your handout. Number one, in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised that some folks today simply will not believe the truth. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be hurt by that. I'm not saying that that shouldn't bother us. Anytime somebody rejects what's right, it ought to bother us. But it shouldn't surprise us necessarily, because it's always been the case. The problem with a lot of folks is it's not a lack of evidence. Sometimes we think with some folks, well, if we can just teach them more. And that may be true with some folks, but with some folks it's not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of knowing what's right. It's a matter of will. It's a matter of them deciding. Are they going to live in harmony with what they already know to be true? And some folks are just not willing to do that. Um, you know, chapter 5, back to John, Jesus said... Uh, John five thirty nine and 40, you search the Scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me, and you won't come to me, that you might have life. He told them, you know the Scriptures, you search them constantly, but those Scriptures that you're searching are testifying about me. But you refuse to come to me. Was it a matter of knowledge with some of them? No, it wasn't. It was a matter of they just did not want to. The same is true with some folks today. Tragic. Alright. Two, there's great security for the believer. We talked about that. And then characteristics of true believers. I don't remember if I added this one. From 20, verses 27 and 28, very quickly. Characteristics of true believers. They listen to Jesus, verse 27. They have fellowship with Jesus, verse 27. They obey Jesus, verse 27. They possess eternal life, verse 28. They have confidence in their salvation, verse 28. And they have security, verse 28. That'd make a good sermon. All right. Thank you much. We'll pick up chapter 11 next week. Thank